You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by John Gentry and Joseph Gordon. John Gentry spent 12 years as an intelligence analyst at CIA, where he worked mainly economic issues associated with the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact countries. For two of those years, he was senior analyst on the staff of the National Intelligence Officer for Warning. He's a retired U.S. Army Reserve Officer with most assignments in special operations and intelligence arenas. On active duty, he was Executive Officer of a Special Forces Operational Detachment. As a reservist, he was mobilized and spent much of 1996 as a Civil Affairs Officer in Bosnia. He is now an adjunct professor in the Security Studies Program at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. Joseph Gordon holds the Colin Powell Chair for Intelligence Analysis at the National Intelligence University, where he has taught since 1981, interrupted by 12 years as a Defense Intelligence Agency Intelligence Analyst. He has written on German history, psychological operations, intelligence analysis, and German unification. In 2013, he established a Strategic Warning Analysis Certificate Program at NIU, which he continues to teach. Dr. Gordon was president of the International Association for Intelligence Education from 2011 to 2015, and is a retired colonel in the U.S. Army Reserve. He is here under his own volition and in speaking uh, in his own mind. He's not here as a representative of NIU or for the United States government. Two Army guys, three Army guys, we're all sitting around the table. John and Joe are the authors of Strategic Warning Intelligence, History, Challenges, and Prospects. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you. So strategic warning as a concept may be one of the least understood of kind of the big picture intelligence things. We talk about collection analysis, dissemination, everything in between. This particular part of, of, of warning, of, of an analysis, is something that some people don't even know exists. Others have heard of it but don't really know what it does. And in many ways don't understand how it fits into the big picture. So talk a little bit about what it is and kind of the difference between strategic warning and tactical warning. Because I think if 
it's never great to d define something by comparing it to something else, but I think a lot of people understand tactical warning a little bit, and so understanding it in relation to strategic warning may make a lot of sense. Strategic warning is, is intelligence uh, providing to very senior decision makers information that something of significance at the strategic level to a nation may be happening and suggesting to them that they, they make a decision about it. So it's, it's different, different from tactical warning in the sense that uh, strategic is big, national, relatively long term, six months to two years. And is different from tactical in the sense that uh, thinking thinking as an old uh, as an old infantry guy, tactical warning is uh, duck the bombs are coming. And strategic warning would be they're developing bombs right now in their laboratories that might have a dramatic impact on the way wars are fought. For ex for yeah. example, yes. Uh, but strategic warning is not just about military threats. It 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 has an economic, a political, a social component, technological component. Um, uh, and it, and it may also involve opportunities. So one of the things that I particularly like, and some of the, the key, the key in, uh, warning officers in the past have emphasized the, warn, the, uh, the opportunity element of strategic warning. And I definitely want to talk about that, because that's really a key component to this that differentiates it from a lot of other things. Let me ask you about the place in the community, because the, there are agencies that do this. Obviously, CIA focuses on this, and the DOD does as well. Um, People in the far reaches of the community, and I, I don't mean to insult them by saying that NRO or NGA or, or others are at the far reaches, they're just as central as the rest of us, but kind of this analytical aspect of long-term thinking and, and analysis and estimates is more of a CIA, DOD purview. How does this fit within the broader IC? And, and we'll, kind of, we'll talk about you know, what Clapper did and other things kind of as we work through as, as, a, as a, a chronology of this. But right now, where does it fit within the broader IC? It doesn't fit very well in the broader IC at the moment. Uh, as, uh, as you referred, referred to, the, uh, uh, the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, in 2011, abolished um, what had been the, 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 uh, the IC-wide uh, central location of warning, that is, was the National Intelligence Officer for Warning. And he distributed the function to the national intelligence managers, the NIMS, to the, the national intelligence officers generally, the NIOs, and to analysts generally. So it is, a, is very broadly diffused now, which means, in essence, that nobody's in charge. I think what, what might rub some people the wrong way or what gives people pause about warning analysis, especially strategic warning analysis, is that it's based a lot on prediction. Right, you're looking ahead, you're looking two years ahead, you're looking five years ahead in some cases, that you're, you're having to predict the future. And that's always tricky. And, and sometimes it's predicting the future based on really good information. Mm -hmm. But like you said, if the bombs are halfway there, it becomes just a mathematical problem, right? It's a geometry problem where they're gonna fall. Mm -hmm. If they're gonna, you need to get your head down in your foxhole, that, there's not a lot of prediction that goes into that. It's just you know where it's coming. But when you're looking at Chinese economic growth in five years. If you're looking at the ability of um, North Korea to develop ICBM capability within, you know, that's strategic warning. There's a lot of predictive element in that too that, that's, I don't want to say best guess because we're way beyond that, but it, it's close to it. Well, uh, for our purpose, uh, what we have written about is, is, is uh, not long-term uh, warning. And that we 
leave to others. Uh, we have strategic uh, futures, the uh, people that look out. But the, uh, the warning that we have uh, written about is, uh, has about a one-year outlook. Uh, time enough to give the policymaker uh, uh, time to uh, react to our alert. And that's really what we have written about. Uh, yeah, actually, actually, I would I would take exception with, mm -hmm. with what you've said, Vince. Uh, uh, typically, although there are clear exceptions, typically warning analysts do not try to actually predict specific things. What they do is say a situation is developing in a way that could have significance. So, Mr. President, Mr. Secretary of State, whoever it may be, begin to pay attention to this and begin to act as appropriate in an incremental way to prepare for this eventuality. So what's critical is, is that something is happening of an, of an unusual and noteworthy sort and that the warned uh, officer begins to, to take some action that, that, and that, 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 uh, that deters, that uh, prevents, that uh, exploits, and so on, this potential event. And a lot of what you're building this on are, are indicators, things yes. that you previously decided, if this happens, we should start paying attention. If this right. happens, we should really pay attention right. and try to do that. How, how do we run into problems with things like mirror imaging and other things? Because we're building indicators. Mm -hmm. How well do we need to know our adversary to build, understand kind of the path they would take versus the path that we might take that might be a different set of indicators to a certain outcome? Well, it's very handy to be expert on the, on the intelligence target uh, because, in, fa in fact, what you're trying to an anticipate or forecast, not to say predict, is the actions of other people in their circumstances. So uh, a substantial degree of expertise is, is important, along with some other characteristics like curiosity, like a little bit of skepticism, like a little bit of suspicion, and, 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 and so on. Joe, you look like you wanted to add something. Well, we also use uh, sort of the indications and warning uh, method, which is to envision scenarios. You identify mm -hmm. potential problem, and then you try to, you, you, you might come up with three to five uh, possibilities possible developments, and then you look for indications of, you know, which one of these is light lighting mm -hmm. up. Uh, and, and uh, you know, as far as prediction goes, we like to quote Yogi Berra, who said it's very difficult because it's about the future. Exactly. So we don't say that we can predict, but we can alert our leaders that there's something that they need to worry about. You, you, talked, about, uh, you talked about things like to, to deter or to prevent, and that leads me to the question that the big problem with all of this is this, what's called the strategic warning paradox. Mm -hmm. The idea that if you do your job perfectly well, you might allow policymakers to prevent something from happening, which means that you're proven wrong in the end. Right. Yeah, that's the paradox, right? Well, nothing happens. Right. So the par the par this is one of the few cases in the intelligence business or in lots of other walks of life where a, a, a complete success looks like a failure. And we know a few, a few cases where this, is, this has happened. That warning comes early, there's enough time, so a time element is a critical part of warning, there's enough time for the senior decision maker to act, the target of your intelligence sees things happening, the risk reward trade-off becomes unattractive, and so the planned event does not, does not, does not occur. Since nothing happens, it looks like there was an, an episode of the so-called cry wolf syndrome, where there's a warning and nothing happens. So and, and kind of the, in a big picture sense, this would be like, if you hear with enough time there's gonna be a massive attack on a military base or something to that effect, 
you reinforce it and so the bad guy doesn't do it and then it looks as though you were crying wolf that there wasn't actually right. going to be a so this coming. is a good example at, at at a more tactical level right or if the uh, leader uh, takes action and it's successful it's an operational success right if it <laughs> fails then it's an intelligence failure so there's no, it's very hard to get credit. Actually, you almost never do. You get credit for a warning success. It's one of the shortest books, I think, in the library. Well, and that really goes into the point of how do you get the right people into this job? You have to be someone who has no desire or need whatsoever for kudos. You know, because the, I mean, you talk about opportunities, we'll talk about that in a second, but a lot of these are warnings of threats. So you're coming with bad news all the time. And the, the best possible scenario is that your bad news doesn't happen, that you're quote unquote wrong because someone does something to prevent it from happening. I mean, this has to be the th most thankless job in the intelligence community. We talk a lot about the fact that everybody's out there kind of doing this and no one knows their names and all this. This is like to an extreme of where um, you don't even get thanked within the community because people blame you for being um, overly dramatic or crying wolf. And not only that, you're looking over the shoulders of, of organizations that have as a job to do something similar to what, to what you're talking about. There's a relatively small group of people, Cynthia Gravo, for example, uh, but others who, who are in the, in the literature on strategic warning and also on deception who have identified a series of traits in uh, warning analysts that are distinctly different from that of, of regular analysts, particularly people who do who do uh, current current intelligence. And so these, these characteristics involve, as you say, a, uh, an ability to uh, not get kudos on a regular basis, curiosity, uh, expertise, uh, development of a, a willingness and an interest in doing long-term research, and so on. And these, these kinds of skills are generally not rewarded now in the, in the intelligence community. When I first started years ago, uh, research was much better regarded than it is now, but in the in the era of uh, of largely current intelligence, the kinds of skills that are important for for warners are just not 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 desired and are not rewarded. Well, because policymakers put weight on something they can show to the public or something right. they can show to their voters or whomever else, and that current intelligence is what kind yeah. of plays like. We found the bad guy. We killed the bad yeah. guy. That's well. The intelligence community uh, responds to consumer, uh, you know, senior policymaker expressed needs, and it's pretty clear that senior leaders like to be kept up to up to speed on uh, what what's going to be in their inbox, to use that old expression, uh, tomorrow or the or the next day. So so uh, short term horizons, well below the. The, the, the strategic warning horizon that traditionally has been looked at, uh, that this short-term horizon is, right. is well established. Well, that always fascinated me when I was doing research in the archives going back into like the 1940s and 50s where there were these 20, 30, 40, 50-year reports on you know, Soviet armament and Soviet industry and also Chinese and everything else. I laughed about who is this for? Mm -hmm. Because no one in power, when that report is written and handed over to Congress or handed over to the White House, will be anywhere near government by the time this thing matters. And sure, you hope that there are long-term thinking people within government, but they're certainly not the ones that are elected, the policymakers that are ones in charge of all this. Is that something that you run into all the time with this, where, yes, you write about one year ahead, but a lot of strategic warning takes place down the road a little bit also, where you might walk into a congressman's office 
and say, look, and he's like, well, I, I run for re-election in a year. What do I care about five years from now? Well, it is, it is, and I think the, in the IC in, in general uh, has, has, has solved this problem by just not doing the longer-term research and the reporting. The, the exceptions clearly are in the National, S, National Intelligence Estimates uh, arena. Um, uh, by way of explanation for the way things used to be done, the idea was that, that, that not just the president or the, or the senior cabinet officers, but the, but the senior-level professional bureaucracy did have longer-time horizons. And the thought also was that by doing significant research, you developed intellectual capital, you developed expertise that allowed a better job at doing current intelligence. And I think that philosophy, frankly, was pretty smart. Well, I would just add to that that the current uh, policy is that every analyst is a warning analyst, and thus you don't need specialists. Uh, to, to do that, right. and just in the course of their daily work, that they should be able to also uh, look ahead and warn in time. Uh, th this we find uh, to be weakness. Right. Especially since current intelligence typically is, is looking forward a few days or back a few days, where strategic warning is looking out clearly uh, further, further ahead. In, in many cases, the policy in this case is almost if you have time, you can do some warning stuff on the end. I mean, imagine. As an additional duty. Right. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the word deception. I think that's one of the really interesting concept behind this is that no one is just doing stuff out in the open assuming that we're going to kind of figure it out and see it. Most everyone, including us, is going to add an element of deception to this. How hard is it? How much of the job is reading through that deception and understanding not only how they're trying to deceive us? I, well, I thought it was interesting. Let me, let me get back. I'm walk my question around a little bit. We talked about knowing the opponent. Right, you know, let's say country X. We need to know everything there is about country X. We need to be an expert on country X. How important is it for us to know what country X thinks about us? Because isn't that how they're going to try to deceive us? Isn't that how we work through that deception element? Because we need to know our own government and our own problems as much. Because we'll talk about more wonky specific stuff with Kosovo and other things later on. But the idea is they understood what Bill Clinton was dealing with with Monica Lewinsky, and they understood the Somalia effect everything else to fight our way through that deception how well do we need to know both them and us equally i think i think you absolutely need to know yourself particularly as ourselves are thinking in terms of the u.s government but this would apply for other countries too you need to know how another country is looking at you you have to you have to know that and in the united states case that is something that we tend not to do very well uh, the simple-minded uh, you know, a simple or the simple version of that is well, gee, we don't spy on our own on our own leaders, but that's not what that's not what really the issue is here. It's understanding the U.S. system. It's understanding how the president interacts with the Congress and so on. And senior intelligence officials over the years have have identified lack of of analyst understanding of the U.S. system as a core problem. So Bob Gates did that, for example, very clearly, very publicly when he was direct, uh, Deputy Director for Intelligence back in the 19, 1980s, and it's still an issue. Mm. Well, in our education, we have uh, a course in the warning program that is exclusively devoted to uh, denial and deception, because you must be sensitive to they may be trying to fool you mm -hmm. or, or, or deceive you. And there, there, you know, there, there is or there was a Foreign Denial and Deception Committee in the IC. And President Reagan established that in 1984. 
and when he was entering into arms control agreement with the Soviet Union, he asked the intelligence community, how do I know that they're not deceiving us? But deception is, is an issue for all analysts, uh, but it's especially an important one for warning people because you're in dynamic interaction. Deceivers are trying to surprise and fool warners, and warners are trying to look through adversary and sometimes friendly actions to identify deception, not only to identify deception, but to understand what the, what the actual intent is. You mentioned that you had a course at NIU focus on this, but that, as far as I've read, that seems to be one of the only places within the IC that a lot of attention is being paid to warn strategic warning. I mean, a lot of it was, was there was a lot of training beforehand when, when it came to training analysts about this, but it seems like something in, in, in down to like a couple hour, almost like a correspondence course that people can take if they feel like it. And they're now, of course, you've got programmatic elements now at NIU, but how much of that has been stripped away from the IC? Well, the IC has almost always had a four-day INW course, indications and warning. But when uh, warning was abolished at the national level and then restored, General Martin Dempsey asked his J-2, where is my warning? So uh, on the, I was on the committee that reestablished warning in the Defense Department, and we suggested that the NIU offer a four-course graduate certificate program in strategic warning. And now it's in the it's sixth year, uh, it's uh, finishing the, uh, the sixth year. So we maintain that a good warning analyst needs a good education. Mm -hmm. It takes time to train or educate somebody to think. Yeah. But this is at the NIU level. The, the, the throughput there is relatively small compared to the, the, the population of the IC as a whole. There have been, as you say, some training uh, courses on denial and deception in the past, but, uh, but they're, uh, they're, they're not nearly as, as, as long as they once were. So let's walk back and talk a little bit about the history of this concept because the CIA, as most people know, was created because of a failure mm -hmm. to pick up on strategic warning. Um, whether that it's, it's fair to kind of be over the top on the failure of Pearl Harbor, I mean, but it, Roberta Wolstetter and everybody else has written about this over the, the idea that we missed some key indications and warnings that there was an attack coming. And so you would think that there would be a huge emphasis placed on strategic warning with the early IC, with the early CIA. And to a degree, there was, you know, in 1948 and 1949, where CIA and DOD really hunkered down on creating these organizations focused on warning. Well, well there, there, there were. And there, there are actually, I think, uh, arguably two major phases in, in warning history. So we did not have a, uh, a warning function per se in 1941. Uh, uh, CIA, as created in 1947, did not have a warning function, but early, early on, beginning of the Cold War, some CIA people, some Army people said, gee, uh, the Soviets are becoming a threat. We need to look at indications that, that uh, the Soviets might, 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 be, might be meaning some harm to us uh, and, our, and our West European allies. So they began to develop what, what would become a formal warning function in the United States. In the early 1950s, a senior level group known as the Watch Committee was formed, and it had a, a set of, of uh, professional intelligence analysts known as the National Indications Center who worked for them. They had uh, significant independence to make 
to make uh, senior level warning decisions, to take warning decisions directly to the White House. Uh, that organization was originally well regarded. It was staffed by uh, sharp, well-respected people. Uh, by the 1960s, it began to, to do what's happened uh, uh, since, uh, the second time, and that's uh, devolved into a current intelligence shop, competing with uh, other, other shops to follow what was going on in Vietnam. In the 1960s, there were some, uh, some major, major failures, failure to predict uh, or to anticipate the Czechoslovak uh, incursion in, in, uh, in uh, 1968. And the Watch Committee had the great misfortune to, to meet literally as uh, the Egyptian forces were crossing the Suez Canal on, on the 6th of October of 1973. So with, in, this, uh, in this way, uh, a once vibrant, good, uh, and uh, warning organization became gradually less efficient, less effective, and finally then in 1975 was abolished by, uh, by DCI Bill Colby. My, my question as a historian looking back at this and trying to figure out how do I evaluate the success or failure of the warning system, it, it's not easy because there were some successes along the way. Mm -hmm. There were, and even some of these failures, like the failure to predict Tet was kind of half a failure because there were people screaming mm -hmm. that something was coming. Same with the Cuban Missile Crisis. There were people that were arguing that there was something happening. Same with the NBN Foo, right? There were people. Do we have to evaluate success and failure when it comes to warning holistically? Meaning, even if the agency or, or whatever, DOD or somebody, is yelling at the White House that something's coming and they do nothing about it, is that a failure of strategic warning? Even though the analysts got it right, mm -hmm and it was the dissemination, do you, do you blame the holistic warning apparatus for the inability to disseminate the urgency of the situation no. to the White House? Or, again, as a historian, I'm right. looking back at this and trying to figure out how do I gauge whether it worked or not. Uh, my, my mentor on this, John Byrd, the National Intelligence Officer for Warning, who asked me to go, go work for him, uh, uh, I think gave me a pretty good, pretty good uh, uh, indication of what constitutes success. So he said it was a three-part three-part process. Collect good information about a topic of warning interest, you analyze it adequately, and then you provide a warning message to senior to the appropriate senior decision maker in a persuasive way. So he used the word persuasion. What he meant by that was that the, the message that something is happening that you need to think about, Mr. or Madam Senior Leader, uh, that that message got to the senior leader. Once the, once the senior leader understood the message, understood its uh, implications, its consequences, and so on, then the warning function is complete. At that point, then, it's, it's the role of a senior decision maker to act or not as he or she sees fit. So the warning function stops at that, at that point. What if it gets to the point, I'm thinking of the August 6, 2001 memo, where Strategic warning was given to the White House in the form of the Barbara Sued memo saying Bin Laden determined attack in the United States. It mentioned New York and Washington, it mentioned airplanes. But there was no one, what, there was no when, there was no how. At, at, at that point, Condoleezza Rice and others looked at it and said, okay, what do you want me to do about this, right? There's obviously no direct action that could have come out of that. <clears throat> they could have grounded every aircraft in the country on August 7th, but how long do you do that? Obviously, that's not going to happen. So. Is that successful strategic warning? Obviously, most Americans would say, no, 9-11 you know, happened a month later. 
Well, my, my understanding of the history outside of this 6th of, 6th of August uh, President's Daily Brief article, a little short one, it's on the web, uh, my understanding is that there were a number of other messages that have not been released. Um, uh, the, 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 the White House staff and intelligence people have indicated that there, there were, in fact, a number of conversations that went back into the Clinton administration. So, so the White House, the new Bush administration White House, was well aware that bin Laden planned an, planned an attack. So President Bush was saying on the, with respect to this particular message, okay, what do I need to do about this? Uh, and, and if he had taken some action, then he had been criticized roundly by the, the aviation industry, by, by, by Congress, and so on. Uh, our view is, that my view is, that, is that, that there was a su sufficient and successful strategic warning given, strategic warning, so the president and the senior White, senior White House staff understood that bin Laden meant to do harm to the United States in the United States. There was, however, a significant, obviously, tactical warning failure. So there was a failure to identify who was going to do what, when, and, mm -hmm. in, and in what way. So adequate strategic warning, failure of tactical warning. What was the impact of the creation of the NIOs? Because that comes, what, mid-1970s, or is it a little later than that? where the national intelligence officers right. were created? Uh, it was mid-1970s. Mid, mid uh, the, the Board of National Estimates had been abolished for some, some, some of the similar, same, the same reasons that I mentioned uh, that led to the, uh, the elimination of the Watch Committee. Uh, the, 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 uh, again, Director Colby uh, said, well, yeah, but we, we, we still need some people who are, who are senior analysts in, char in charge of monitoring key uh, bits of information, and their job is to uh, coordinate with the community as a whole and also be the intelligence community's liaison with, sen with senior leaders. So the NIOs were created, and then later on, a help was, was creation of the National Intelligence Council, which put them into, a, into an, uh, an organized whole. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Is it correct or incorrect to make an analogy to almost like theater combatant commanders when it comes to the NIOs? If, if people, not necessarily that they have command over this, but they're, they're some of the clearinghouse for this information for a certain region of the world or for a certain type of, um, there's no combatant obviously, but you know, NIO for warning, a specific thing about that. Is that a bad analogy or is it relatively apt? No, it isn't because I think current uh, thinking is that the regional commanders now are actually the focal point of, of warning for the most part. And they're the ones uh, that actually, uh, we say, are in charge of the warning problem and they're not at the national level. This is supposedly a compensation for the lack of any uh, real effective uh, warning apparatus at the national level. But, but a key difference is that the, the, the NIOs are 
are generally considered, and usually are, analysts. So they're people who advise right. senior senior leaders. They interact with them on a, on a close basis. They're not actually uh, troop troop commanders. Right. So and that and that does make a does does make a difference. But their job again, interact clearly with the IC as a whole, and to provide tailored and personal uh, in, intelligence information and, uh, and and advice in essence to. Uh, to, to senior decision makers. Not advice in the sense of a policy recommendation, but advice advice about what's going on in the world. And you talk about, you use the word personal, I think that's interesting too, in that um, when we've talked before and certainly within what you've written, the relationship and trust mm -hmm. and the understanding of the consumer of intelligence with the actual briefer or the NIO in this case is paramount. How much of that has kind of gone to the wayside when you create this everybody's a warning analyst and there's no real NIO for warning anymore and the one-to-one -one interaction because you know you can, the jury's still out on the on the office of the director of national intelligence as a historian I need about 25 years before I can make a determination about whether it makes sense but it adds a level of bureaucracy and you already have several levels of bureaucracy above you if you're a high-level CIA analyst you've got directors and everybody else it does remove you somewhat from the policymaker, from the consumer. How problematic is that? Because it seems like, look, if you came in and said the sky is falling, if I don't know you from Adam, I may completely ignore what you have to say. But if we've had a two-year relationship where I trust what you're saying, I might take it much more seriously. Trust is one of the most important words in the, in the intelligence business. It was particularly true in the, in the warning business because, because uh, warning people typically are asking senior decision makers to make decisions that they don't want to make. The, the decision could involve a military uh, action, could entail uh, 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 cost in lives, in national treasure, in national reputation, in political, the political standing and the re-election possibilities of the, of, the, of, the, of the president. So if there is not a good relationship of trust, I trust the information you're giving me, giving me, I trust your analysis of it, I trust that you're not going to leak to the New York Times, then the action, then they, the, 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 the not uncommon, and we have some history on this, uh, the not uncommon reaction is to say, eh, I don't really trust you, so I'm going to ignore what you're saying, or alternatively, gee, um, let's wait and see what happens. Wait till the situation becomes more clear. Well, waiting until things become clear is, is fatal to the warning business mm -hmm. because you have to give decision makers enough time to make a decision and to implement the decision. So, so uh, you're always warning under conditions of substantial uncertainty, and if there is no trust, uh, that, that persuasion is likely to not occur. There are two obstacles also to dealing with the policymaker. Number one, he doesn't want to see a warning officer come walking towards <laughs> his office because he's already very busy. And, and then the other is that we have, it's a challenge to be persuasive these days because the policymaker often is better informed than the intelligence uh, in that uh, we, everybody has their own connections to the media to, uh, and we talk with other high level, they talk with other high level officials and so forth. So they are very well informed. So you really have to bring them something they weren't thinking about and be able to, again, persuade them to change, you know, drop everything and focus on this. So, and then there's policymaker bias. I want to ask you about that because mm -hmm. 
You talk about being more informed or at least thinking that they're more informed. Mm -hmm. That could be a real issue you run into when you've got someone who's like, oh, no, I read this online or whatever. I know exactly what's going on. You're telling them the opposite. Well, again, trust is critical there. Uh, but you're dealing with you're dealing with leaders who who have varying backgrounds, varying educations, varying degrees of confidence in their in their in their own action, and uh, this is not just true in the United in the United States. So, uh, war, uh, warning and intelligence generally uh, has as a, as a core mission understanding what it is that 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 leaders want from intelligence, and providing it not in the sense of pandering to specific messages although that certainly happens in authoritarian countries, but in our culture, the idea is to, is to always meet uh, the, the substantive needs of intelligence, uh, excuse me, of senior consumers and do it in a way that is, that is uh, amenable to their, their interests, their style. They read in the morning, they read in the afternoon, they want, they want oral briefings, uh, they want videos and so on. So to help them to help them to understand what you're trying to, to, to communicate to them in a way that is uh, easily digestible for them. I wanna, a lot of what warning was designed to do was for the first several decades of the existence of the CIA really focused on great power struggle, mm -hmm. focused on trying to warn whether it's the Soviets come running across the Folder Gap or there's missiles on the way or there's, there's a lot of big great power conflict wrapped up in the first several decades. We'll talk a little bit about the post-Cold War world because this was a, a kind of a dramatic shakeup, or at least I read it as a dramatic shakeup. And I want to ask you how big a deal was it when Bob Gates comes in and kind of reworks the way warning of how big of a change did he bring with him and how warning was done in the post-Cold War world? Uh, I don't think Gates made too much of a, of a difference. Gates uh, got hammered. Uh, in 1991 in his confirmation hearings. He, of course, was an experienced intelligence officer, and he tried to do quite a number of things that I think in general were, were positive in that, that 1992 and uh, 20 days of 1993 that he was, that he was the, the DCI. There was actually a group of uh, people who, ref who, who suggested re reform of warning, uh, and it was basically ignored after, after he left. So to, to, to step back just a little bit and answer your question, so you had the downturn in the, in the warning function in, the, in 1975, 1979, the Soviets are going into Afghanistan. You create at that point the National Intelligence Officer for Warning. That function is working pretty well through the, through the demise of the, of the Soviet Union. But in the early 1990s, you get what? No Soviet Union anymore, right. no Warsaw Pact anymore. A little bit later in the 1990s, the Defense Department declared that it had achieved full-spectrum dominance. Right. So if, there, if, the, if, if defense can handle any threat in any circumstance, anywhere, at any time, then uh, inquiring minds may want to know, if they're thinking about warning as a military threat function, why do we need warning? So. Uh, beginning in the early 1990s, there was pressure put on the, on the warning function. Why do we need you? Uh, w w what is the big threat? We're not worried about a Pearl Harbor anymore. Uh, and so there was a, a, a diminution of, of the, the major, major function. NIOs, though, were looking at more regional threats, smaller threats. They were looking at opportunities in, in some cases. Well, that was, that's a key word because if you look at warning as a kind of a, a threat only exclusively, then yeah, maybe there isn't a whole lot of reason to have a lot of warning officers after the end of the Cold War because you don't have an existential threat anymore necessarily. 
But if you're looking at warning as an ability to bring opportunities, I mean, this is exactly what you would think of in the 1990s as, okay, there's this new world of crazy where no one really understands what's going on, a lot of shifting alliances, a lot of countries coming to their own. To me, that opens itself up for the ability to exploit, and I'm using that word without any kind of connotation to it, exploit this new world and find opportunities to do things. And that's, that's something that you've talked a lot about mm -hmm. also, the idea of what does it mean to provide warning of opportunities, because people might not have any idea what that means. And of course, you do mention and you identify that there's the reason people don't do that a lot is because of this fear of kind of pushing into the political, right. into the crossing, policy crossing the line into, yeah. into policy policy advocacy. So the, the basic idea between uh, uh, the basic idea of warning, of opportunity warning or opportunity analysis is to say to senior decision makers, we we see a situation developing in which in which an, an administration uh, uh, action using potentially all of the instruments of national power might be able to advance or defend uh, American interests. So the idea is to, is to identify an opening not to recommend specific policy, policy actions, but, but because there will be policies chosen immediately after the, 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 the opportunity is, is mentioned, some people, including some warning officers, will say, I'm not going to touch that. I'll leave that to, to line analysts or to the State Department or the Defense Department to handle. But if you do that, then all you're doing is threats. Yes. Yeah. And so that then leads you, leads to the, the uh-oh, it's the warning guy yeah. again. I don't want <laughs> I don't want to talk with that guy. So one of the tactical techniques of a good warning officer is to sometimes be useful in a positive way. So, so the advocates of opportunity warning say you'd better be periodically op op optimistic in the sense of providing an opportunity warning or your welcome is going to wear out quickly. I mean, could that be an indication like where a leadership analyst you know, says, hey, look, someone may come to power in a couple of years and as they get in there, you can kind of walk in there and go, hey, look, the guy who might be elected, there's an opportunity here for working with them much closer or doing things to that. To For that. example, yeah. that would be a great one. And of course, that wouldn't necessarily be, usually would not be a military warning right. thing situation. So so there are plenty of cases where where there have been a, 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 a political threat or opportunity warnings given, economic economic ones and, and so on. So actually over time, the scope of, of, of warning has, has, has expanded considerably. So in the early days, there was actually directive you will worry about Soviet military threats only. Over time, by the by the nineteen by the nineteen eighties, the scope of warning had expanded considerably. Well, that's because of the what, terrorist attacks in the nineteen eighties yes. and other things like that. But also, uh, not just that. Uh, I mean, one, uh, uh, NIO for warning. Bob Vickers told us as we, we were interviewing for the books that, that one of one of the the, the two big. Uh, uh, alleged warning failures on his watch was failing to warn of the Indian Indian uh, nuclear tests in 1998. So would would in fact the United States have, have had an ability to change that testing? D did it make any difference? Right. Well, I mean both of those are, are debatable points. But he uh, he told us he received an awful lot of criticism for failing to to, to warn of that event. And one reason that warning was abolished after the end of the Cold War was that it was considered a relic of that period. 
But Warning has tried, I think, successfully in many ways to ad adapt to the transnational that you mentioned, the transnational threats of cyber, weapons of mass destruction, terrorism, uh, with, with some success. But uh, your warning has tried to stay abreast of these uh, new challenges. Well, and things are changing. So on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis, uh, things, things, things don't change very much. But over time, considerably. So Cynthia Grabo, the classic, the doyen of, uh, of, of warning, uh, was not at all concerned about about cyber warning when she when she wrote in uh, you know in 19, 1971 right. she wasn't concerned that 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 uh, Kosovo, Kosovo or uh, Albanians would try to manipulate the president of the United States uh, either so there are there have been there's been evolution in the types of things that warning analysts should be looking at and the techniques for identifying these have evolved so one of the one of the many reasons why we think it's a bad idea to not have a central locus of warning is that, is that there's no one to to push to to prod and so on and to do research on these 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 new uh, emerging uh, warning issues. Well, you segue you segued me to it, so I want to I was going to talk about it later, but I want to talk about it now. You mentioned Kosovo and Albania because, and you you threw a tantalizing little tidbit out there about manipulating manipulating the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. So I do want to not go off and come back to. It. I want to talk about it now. This idea of norm exploitation, or, or, or where, uh, as you you describe it in a paper that you wrote about the exploitation of casualty aversion norms using methods designed to induce states with competent mil militaries to intervene in limited wars in ways that benefit the exploiting belligerent. So this is wonky talk, but there's a very basic way to mention this, and this is certainly a case study that happens in the late 1990s in the Balkans. Uh, which uh, near and dear to my heart was I was there while this was happening, so I was interested to see why we, we got pulled we into all that were. crap. Yes, in one way or another, absolutely. You talk a little bit about what happened here, because you're basically saying that President Clinton, who I don't care what you think about his politics, is one of the most brilliant men to ever be president, as far as his intelligence concerned, was had the wool pulled over his eyes. He was completely right. duped right. by the KLA. Right. So. Uh, short version. Uh, short, short version on all this is, uh, as I think, as, as uh, uh, all our listeners understand, uh, the, 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 the societies in the West and indeed all over the world have been become more concerned about about casualties. And ca casualty aversion has has become embedded in the ethics of uh, many societies, including 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 the United States. So, casualty aversion norms became uh, well known and became became political vulnerabilities in the eyes of people who wanted to exploit this. So basically, again, short version here is that three times in recent American history, in 1994, 95 by uh, Bosnian Muslims, 1998, 99 by Kosovar Albanians, and in 2011 by Libyan rebels, there have been, in essence, stories created, and in some cases, actually facts changed on the ground, uh, designed to 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 evoke and to amplify casualty aversion norms in a way that vilified the enemies of these uh, manipulators to get uh, an external force, including the United States, then to intervene on their behalf. So, for example, uh, in uh, in 1994-95, uh, Bosnian Muslims mortared uh, uh, Sarajevo and and Mostar killed some of their own people, uh, and in the fall of 1995, that led uh, President Clinton to, to, uh, to um, uh, uh, 
uh, orchestrate NATO airstrikes on, on Serbs. Uh, in, in 2011, a different case, uh, you had uh, uh, basically stories created about, about uh, the Qaddafi administration, Qaddafi regime killing civilians, um, issuing Viagra uh, to soldiers to rape women in large numbers, completely made up, made up stories, but were enough in the 2011 case to get the French, the British, and the United States to intervene militarily in a regime change mission, which was exactly what the, 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 the rebels wanted. So this, this causes, this is a, a real wrinkle in, uh, in the warning business because in essence a warner, if the warner is paying attention to this kind of thing, in essence has to say to a, an American president, a British prime minister as the case may be, Mr. President, People you think are being, or you think are being victimized, and people you think are your friends, in fact, view you as an exploitable fool. So it's hard enough, it's hard enough, for reasons we talked about earlier, to generate trust and, and persuasive warning messages without having to go to a president and say, to, and, and saying, in essence, uh, you are, you have been, you not only are viewed as as, as foolable, but you have been duped. And I can imagine how hard it would be were, like say in 95 with Clinton be like, look, people have been telling me about Srebrenica and the Bosnian Serbs massacring thousands of, of Muslims and obviously for the last several years, their genocide has been taking place. But in this case, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, they're killing their own people. Like what, you know, yeah. what, what do I believe? Because it's not like the Bosnian Serbs are Boy Scouts. Absolutely not. And it's not like the Gaddafi government are nice people. Absolutely not. And it's not like the later on the Serbian government in Kosovo are doing nice things. It's trying to find that balance and saying, look, this thing that's tipping the scales, this thing is going to make you decide to send in NATO is bullshit. You're being duped about that, which that has to add a layer of complexity. So the, so the, multi, the manipulators study their, their intended victims very closely. So in the, in the, you had this happen twice in the Clinton administration. So you understand, for example, that, that, that President Clinton, uh, later on Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, that they have already concluded that the Bosnian Serbs are bad people and that they are the culprits in this war. So now you've got what in some quarters is called cognitive closure. So you've got, a, you've got a, a bias, if you will, put it in other terms. So you've got a, a, a view of the world that that then can be manipulated selectively by by the uh, and KLA and the, and the and the Muslims in this case, but so what that means then is that put it in another way is that manipulators study their targets very very closely and they understand them quite well. So warning people need to tell President of the United States you are being studied, your your policies, your attitudes, your predilections, your language. Is being is being studied and understood very carefully, and that your your erstwhile friends are going to use these characteristics against you. Let me ask you about one more real issue that really jumped out at me when I was reading through this: is the idea that intellectual conservatism. This is not about political conservatism. This is not about Republican versus Democrat. In the wake of mistakes, there have been lots of intelligence failures, big and small. They happen frequently because you're making 10,000 calls a day. If you miss a couple of them, they're gonna become public and people are gonna know about them. 
how hard is it to recruit the people? I think about this in a baseball term, right? Where your closer goes out and gets lit up for five runs. It has to go out the next day and get the save, right? It has to forget what happened the day before. Do we need to recruit those same kind of people into the intelligence world where they don't lick their wounds for years after 9-11 and say, I can never make a call again or if a mistake and move forward? Because as we talked about in the very beginning, warning intelligence has no pat on the back and success rate. It's either you fail and we get hit hard or you succeed and it looks like you're an idiot because you were saying about something that didn't happen. Well, that's a simple question. Uh, uh, I think my immediate reaction is that, is that it's not such an issue for young people. Uh, people who come into the intelligence business are interested in, in public service, they're interested in the intellectual challenge, they're interested in, in serving. It is a bigger issue for, uh, for the leaders, though, because they are the ones who are going to be receiving they're going to be the ones who are going to be receiving criticism. And, and a number of people, Mark Lowenthal comes to mind, for example, uh, wrote, a, wrote a piece soon after, soon after the uh, 2004 Reform Act, where, he, where he, it was an op-ed piece in the Washington Post, talked about spineless spies. And the, the spineless spies, the leaders, are people who, who refuse to defend themselves uh, adequately, and others Mark, but also others have said, you know, you uh, you let yourself be pushed around after after 9/11. Yes, there was a tactical failure, but but it really didn't require um, a massive reorganization. That on, in general the IC does pretty well. Why don't you make that make that point? So some people, I think me included, would say that the, that the 2004 Reform Act, uh, while having some good elements to it. Also, is dysfunctional in some way. It's it's, int it's introduced some some negative aspects for warning in particular, uh, but for other other areas as well. Well, we toured the 9/11 uh, museum uh, yesterday as part of a uh, an intelligence uh, uh, education conference, and they mentioned that in 1993 that this was the site of a bin Laden attack on the, you know, on the building. And uh, while well, we should have, uh, that, uh, we should have known, you know, that, and we should have been more alert here that they were going to try that again. And this was, you know, hindsight. Right. And why didn't you, you know, you should have known if you connected the dots, I think they said. And uh, so it was you know, an irrational, I think, reaction. You've got to blame somebody for this. Hindsight bias is alive and well. Hope, hopefully you like what we did a little bit better in this museum because <laughs> we made it a point not to do that uh, here. I mean, the, the idea of looking back and, you know, sure, we have all the answers now. You know, we it's have, easy. Yeah. Looking back, you know, as an historian, I guess for, for perhaps it's, it's perhaps easy. You know at least what happened at right. the end. But uh, we don't know what's happening at the end. So let me ask you about fixes. So th there's clearly a problem here. There's clearly, and, and we've identified the problem, so at least there's that step that's been taken of here's what's problem, here's what we need to do. How do we go about fixing this stuff? Like what, what needs to happen? How do we find a home for a warning? Um, how do we create a, a method that is consistent with the IC and not just with CIA, because I think that needs to be kind of go forward. Is it make sense to put it within the ODNI? Does it make sense you mentioned possibly the idea of making a think tank or a private firm or something like right. that? Is there a fix to this? And let me ask the bigger question. You can kind of put this all together. Is a fix politically possible? Is a fix 
possible within the bureaucracy of the IC without another big screw up, intelligence failure to allow for this massive kind of institutional change that's necessary. Uh, the, uh, the structural fix is relatively easy if there's a will. Uh, my own, I'm fairly pessimistic about whether this will occur before, a minor, before a, another significant warning failure. Uh, there are a number of possibilities, as you, as you, as you mentioned. Uh, my personal favorite would be to restore, restore a... Just, start with my personal favorite, I think that's where it would be. Uh, my personal favorite in terms of a structural change uh, would be to recreate the, the National Intelligence for Officer for Warning function. So you have a senior executive per, uh, person in, a, in an analytic function working with uh, other NIOs, regional and functional, who are uh, charged with warning in their particular areas. Uh, th this individual is, is charged with, uh, with interacting regularly with senior, senior decision makers. So this, this, uh, this new position would be uh, structurally what we call a hybrid model. So you'd have a central location, senior individual, small staff coming from uh, major IC agencies, uh, most of them rotating, but maybe a few, few who would be uh, near, near permanent. They would interact regularly with line analytic units. Uh, and, and push, prod, cajole uh, as, as appropriate to get the line units to do warning. But if that, that did not work, uh, the NIO for warning would have the authority uh, and the clout to, to generate senior level persuasive warning to seniors, to senior officials. And this wouldn't be something where you just want to throw manpower at the problem. You actually you know, want to do the opposite. You want to have a small number of people who are very, very good and her well-respected. So a large number of mediocre warning analysts are, are counterproductive. So they're worse than useless. So you need to have very, very good people whose interpersonal skills are excellent, whose analytic skills are excellent, who can interact regularly with, uh, with senior people. And who are a little quirky. I mean, I, you kind of, I mean, I, I, you want people who don't, the, 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 the cliche thinking outside the box, but you want people who don't go through life kind of looking at the world in a normal right. way. Right. And, Right. So, uh, you know, Dick, Dick Betts uh, has, a, has a, a, a term for this. He says that most analysts regularly use normal theory to do what they, what they, what they do, and it normally works really well. But in the warning arena, you need, you need what he calls exceptional thinking. So this is a broad category, again, for curiosity, for, for a little bit of suspicion, willingness to, to go off in, in odd directions, being willing to say, okay, we gave this a shot. It doesn't look like it's going to be an issue after all. We need any more. It's not a problem. We'll go on to, go on to something else. But this individual at a, senior, at a senior position would have some other characteristics that we haven't talked about. He'd have, he'd have, he or she would have the ability to uh, affect collection requirements. Something, something that, that uh, gee, you know, we're, we're concerned about this. It's not going to make tomorrow's President's Daily Brief, uh, but it may be important for the future. So I want to be able to use a little bit of clout to, to, to change, to change uh, uh, collection requirements a little bit. Another thing would be in the, in, the, in the research area. So we talked about cyber and so on. Uh, the distinct impression I get is we really don't know how to do cyber warning at this point. Uh, IARPA. The research people are working on this, uh, but it's it's a, a new a new area. You need you need I think to have uh, an NIO for warning or equivalent 
to be able to push this kind of research and not just rely on the, on the research people to do it. Are, are you optimistic about agencies like IARPA where there are research programs on analysis that are building off of like what Phil Tetlock did mm -hmm. and looking at super forecasting and right. trying to understand how effectively those, I mean, this is a, for those of you who don't know, this is a project that, that actually took non-intelligence professionals and ran them through open source materials and they actually did very, very well um, in forecasting events coming in the future. I very much minimized it and reduced it down to just that. You have to read the book, uh, it's great. Um, but that's something that, that IARPA took seriously and yes. actually looked at it and there are actually programs going on right now yes. where they're trying to understand how the, the mind of the analyst works and how to recruit better analysts and everything else. Is that something that gives you at least a little bit of optimism that we're trying to look in the right direction? Uh, I think it's a good, 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 good move. Good move in the right direction. Uh, but uh, Tedlock is 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 doing forecasting, right? And so the, the experiment, that, the experiments, the, the the kinds of things that he's doing, or kinds of questions that he's asking, are discrete questions that have clear answers at a specific point mm -hmm. in time. Who's going to be the next British Prime Minister? Who's going to win the election in, in Italy or whatever, whatever the case, whatever the case may be? Uh, most most uh, strategic warning questions are not that simple. Right. They are what what are sometimes called mysteries. They're not puzzles, and we're not as we as we talked about earlier. You're not normally predicting specific events. That said, the kinds of skills and temperament and so on that are useful for forecasting are also useful for warning. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate the time. The book is called Strategic Warning Intelligence, History, Challenges, and Prospects. It's available in multiple forms, so you don't have to spend the $100 on the hardcover or whatever it is. But um, it, it's definitely a new way of looking at this not very well-known aspect of intelligence for all you uh, budding grad students or early career professionals out there who haven't even heard of this before. Uh, take a look, because this is a, a key component to what you're going to be doing in your careers moving forward. Uh, we really appreciate the time, John and Joe, for, for joining us here at, at SpyCast. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Vince. Yeah. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.